I want to just talk to you this morning, if I can, well, actually, we're in this afternoon now, about something that I believe for us at this particular passage in time or season in time is of a fundamental importance. I want to talk to you about what it would look like for us, you and I as individuals and collectively as a community, to partner in prayer with the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is the great high priest and he intercedes day and night for his people. He intercedes over our lives, over our brokenness, over our weariness. He intercedes over our giftedness. He intercedes over those things that he's placed in us and he intercedes over those revelations that we carry as he has graced us with an understanding of his nature and his character. Jesus never sleeps. He doesn't need to. <laughs> he is everlasting to everlasting. His resources never run dry. He is consistently and persistently true to who he is and all that he desires to accomplish. I don't know how you feel about those truths. Sometimes those truths can be very familiar to us, but actually they're essential in, an, in a world where anarchy and chaos and confusion seems to rule and reign. And more and more increasingly, as the days unfold for us, we will find ourselves in a world that resembles very little of the world that God intended it to be. Now, how do we connect with God and how do we connect with God's purposes whenever the world around us is so quickly and indeed ungloriously changing? Well, I think sometimes Christians struggle with that truth. I think sometimes when you put on the news, you start to be a little bit connected to one of the narratives. Have you been watching some of the candidates electing and, and sorry, canvassing and trying to court you currently? Have you noticed any of that on television? I mean, who would have thought that so many individuals could be interested in floods, for example? As you watch that, lots of questions come to the fore. Is this person really compassionate for people who are broken or in need of help? Or is there a political agenda that's taking place there? I don't need you to answer it. I just need you to think about it. I watch Question Time. I watch some of these programs and I listen to one person. And I think, yes, I think I agree with you. I could maybe pray for God to do something like that. And then somebody else speaks and I think maybe I agree with you and I could pray for what God. It's very difficult in a world that's so confused about what is or what isn't reality or truth, to be able to stay in partnership with the truth itself. And there is but one who can help us do that, and that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been promised to us, and given to us, to lead us into all truth. How many of us this morning realize that and recognize that we need to be led into all truth in this particular season of the church? Even in church environments, we find that one group of people say one thing and another group of people say another thing. There are some people who are presence-led. There are others who are purpose-driven. There are some people who are just confused about the whole thing and they just turn up on a Sunday. It's very, very difficult to understand in the climate that's consistently shifting and changing. Some things become popular. Some things go out of fashion. Let me give you an example of something that's not fashionable currently. Holiness. It seems to have gone out of fashion over the years. And yet I believe that the end time church will be a church that has robust holiness. Not religion, not a set of rules or regulations to live by, but such a confidence in the nature and the character of God, 
abiding and residing in the human heart that people make the right choices in the right situations. Holiness is not a philosophical ideology about what is pure or not. It's simply a life that's in alignment with the truth and the reality of the nature and the character of God. And yet you go to some churches and nobody talks about holiness. And you go to other churches and they make you squirm in your seats regarding the whole concept of holiness. It would seem to me that we are polarized in humanity from one extreme to the other about a whole bunch of issues. And if there was ever a time when the church needed to be brought fully into all truth, it's now. The world is waiting for us to turn up in our contexts with a clarity and a confidence about the reality of God and offer out of humility and service an alternative reality to the one that people have to face. Joy needs to be present in the church in this hour. Anybody remember joy? <laughs> yes, a few years ago. Would anybody like her to visit again? Who would like joy? <laughs> I think all of us should have said yes to that. We need joy because joy strengthens us in the midst of the battle. Amen? Joy aligns us to the nature of God in the midst of the chaos. Joy reminds us that it is finished. Joy positions us for what the Spirit wants to do in and through the life of a believer. How many of us need joy? How many of us need peace? Now, peace is not the absence of problems. Jesus didn't tell us that we would never have a bad day. He did, however, tell us that you'd have many. Consider it pure joy when you are persecuted and suffer hardships as a result of belonging to me. I don't quite get what that means, but I aspire to it. Imagine living at such a point that you were so internally clear, so certain, so confident about who God is and what he's doing in and through your life in this world that it wouldn't matter what the enemy threw at you. You would live with that kind of resilience and that resistance to any paralyzation in your spiritual journey. For the church to move towards the future that's opening up, some things need to shift and change. What about this as an invitation in this hour? Courage. You know, I think the church has become a little like a chocolate teapot. It melts with the first sign of heat. The world doesn't like us and we retreat. No, no, the scriptures tell us, arise, shine, for the light has come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. This is not time for the church to be marginalized or paralyzed. This is time for the church to be energized because the reality is what we see in the world are the birth pangs of the return of Jesus Christ. We are not disheartened whenever anarchy and chaos is starting to move and advance. We are heartened because it simply reminds us of this truth. Christ is nearer than he's ever been. That and whom we delight and long for is coming soon. Our soon and coming king. And indeed, if you go back to the New Testament in the book of Acts, you recognize that the first century disciples live with that kind of certainty and that sound of clarity. And guess what happened? Many were added to their numbers on a daily basis. Signs and wonders and glorious things happened in the church. It advanced gloriously in the midst of adversity. How many of us believe that God can do that again? 
How many of us believe that God wants to do that again? He wants the church to rise up in the midst of society. We're not apologizing. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. So how are we going to get there? How is that kind of life and that kind of reality going to be formed and fashioned in my soul? Well, I believe we have some things to think about and some invitations to respond to. I believe the Holy Spirit, who knows everything about everything and everyone, and lives consistently in unity with the Father and the Son, is the only one who has capacity in and through our lives to bring the church of Jesus Christ into victory. Jesus has provided for it, and the work of the Spirit is to ensure that we get to live in it. I don't want a theology about victory. I want a reality of victory. I don't need to sing another song about breakthrough. I want to see breakthrough. And I know it's not by might and it's not by power, but it's by the working of the Spirit in and through my life that I will rise in that kind of victory. I cannot experience that by human effort. It comes out of a resource far more glorious than human hard work. It comes out of the Spirit's life in and through me. Now, the book of Nehemiah, which we're going to study a little bit again today, is a foreshadow of a New Testament promise. Jesus promised his disciples in the, in the New Testament church that they would receive power. How many of us need power? Come on, wake up, church. How many of us need power? We need more power to live this life and to make this life available to others. Do you need power in your witnessing? Do you need power in your service? Do you need power in your worship? Yes. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. He said you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. But Nehemiah is a foreshadow of that which Jesus promised to be a reality in the New Testament. And the name Nehemiah means comforter. Now many of us want comfort in the midst of the battle. Now the kind of comfort I'm talking about is not a comfort that's sympathy and tea. You see, I think the church has somehow lost an understanding of what comfort looks like scripturally. It's not God putting his arm around us and saying, it's really hard for you. I'm sorry you have to go through this. That's sympathy and tea. The kind of comfort that I want from heaven is a real clarity that God is going to do something in spite of my difficulties. I find that comforting. That in the midst of my sickness, he is the healer who delivers me and sets me free. That's comforting. I'm comforted by the fact that he who began this journey with me is working in me today and will carry it on until it's completed. That's comforting. I'm comforted by the fact that the enemy doesn't have the last word. We know how the story ends. He wins. That's really comforting to me. I'm comforted by the fact in my fractured understanding of what it means to be a Christian that one day God will do such a work in me that when I get to heaven, I will be like him. I'm comforted that my name is written in the Lamb's book of life and there's no tipex in heaven. That when God speaks, he speaks and it is as he says it is. And I'm comforted that while I'm waiting for all of that to become my reality, he abides in me with power and authority and dominion over all things that present themselves against his purposes. See, the comfort that's on offer is never and could never be sympathy and tea. We need a more robust comfort. And that comfort can only become apparent to us 
when we learn to live in partnership with the work of the Holy Spirit, He begins to fashion in us a courage for the adventure that lies ahead. If you lack courage, it's because you have not allowed the Holy Spirit to make you courageous in the way that you live. On the day of Pentecost, when they were filled with the Spirit, they spilled out onto the streets, men and women whose lives were at risk, and they stood boldly in the marketplace and declared the wonders of God. We need courage for the journey that lies ahead. We need God to give us joy for the journey that lies ahead. We need a peace that surpasses understanding that in the midst of all the anarchy, his kingdom rules and reigns over my mind, my family, my workplace, my finances, and all my relationships. Somebody say amen to that. So the Holy Spirit is at work in us. Hallelujah. Three of us are glad, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is at work in us to bring the whole life of Jesus Christ into the whole of our personality so that the whole love of God can be relayed to the whole world around me. But God has subjected all of that to my partnership with the Holy Spirit. God has subjected the advances of His purposes in and through my life to my relationship with His Holy Spirit. Now, Nehemiah, the comforter, the foreshadow of the one who was to come can teach us a lot of things about how to live in partnership with the Holy Spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to guide and to lead and facilitate the purposes of God in our lives. In the 13 chapters of the book of Nehemiah, there are 17 prayers. 17 prayers in the 13 chapters. But chapter 1 is where I want to camp this morning or this afternoon with you. And there are some things here that I believe we need to pay attention to as we desire with all our hearts to see the Spirit of God work in and through us to accomplish His purposes here on the earth. If you have a Bible with you this morning, go to Nehemiah chapter 1 for me, please. We're going to be reading together from verses 4 through to 11. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. This is Nehemiah. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you amongst the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands... Then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayers of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today, by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And that man there was the cup 
It says there, as a caveat to that, I was a cupbearer to the king. Now, what I want to highlight to you as we're seeking to work with and partner with the Holy Spirit in prayer to bring about the purposes of God is that Nehemiah did not start this conversation by being overwhelmed. The problem was overwhelming. How many of us believe that we're living in a season where the problem is overwhelming? But Nehemiah doesn't start with complaining. His tone, the truth, and the thrust of his prayer was based on the nature and the character of the God that he delighted in. Now, even at that, we could camp for a while and stop and think together about how often our prayer is less than that. Sometimes in our world where there's lots of troubles and difficulties, we do not pray from that kind of clarity. We do not therefore pray with any great certainty. And sometimes I find when I listen in on people's prayers, and trust me, I'm not an, an eavesdropper, but sometimes people pray like God isn't for them, like God doesn't care about their situation. In fact, some people pray like a weeping widow, like they have nothing and they lack everything and they need God to come in an emergency kind of way. Do you know, church, we are not a weeping widow. The winter has passed. We are a rejoicing bride on the eve of her wedding day. A people full of hope. Nudge the person next to you and say, I think he's talking to you. A people full of joy. Now, I think it's remarkable that Nehemiah even prayed at all. What a wonderful response to an overwhelming situation. Do you sometimes feel paralyzed and unable to pray? Not really sure how to pray? Not sure what to pray? Not sure when to pray? I think Nehemiah demonstrates to us a clarity about the relationship he has with his God that is heartening to you and me today. He realizes this. He doesn't need to be angry with God over what's happened. Is there anyone here today who's angry with God over some things that have happened? Now, I know theologically you know it's not appropriate, but that doesn't mean that your heart won't deceive you into thinking it's a luxury you cannot afford. Sometimes there are lots of Christians, and if you scratch and sniff at their spirits, you realize that they are angry at the core of their being because God did not do what they believe God would do for them. We need to resolve those issues in our heart. Let me just say that. I don't know who this is for. God has not let you down. He may not have promised you what you asked for in the first place, and sometimes our presumptive prayers lead us into problems where we think God is withholding something. God will hold nothing that's good for you, so maybe your prayer needs to be switched up to something that's good for you. Aren't you grateful that God doesn't answer prayer sometimes? Think of the prayers you've prayed and the mess you'd be in if God had answered them for you. Some of us would be married to people we would never be able to live with. Hallelujah, God didn't answer that prayer. Come on, please, church. Some of us would be in dead-end jobs that we only wanted an emergency bailout from, and we'd be on a factory floor for the rest of our lives when there's so much more going on in us, and the Father saw the end before the beginning, so he said, hang on a minute, just trust me and wait. Not this week, but next week, something's coming. It's much better than this. I'm glad that God doesn't always answer my prayers. What it tells me is he knows a lot more about what's real and what isn't real than I do. He simply is breathtaking in his understanding of the plan and the purpose he has for our lives. But Nehemiah comes and he prays. He's not angry. He's not depressed. He's not blaming anybody. Have you ever come to prayer and it's full of blame for everybody? Oh God, that man that you gave me. 
Oh God, this job that you blessed me with. You know, I've been so challenged over the last few months. Because you pray and ask God to bless you, He blesses you and you spend your whole life complaining about the blessing. Amen. Oh, it's hard. Well, God says, I never promised you be easy, but you asked me to bless you, I blessed you. Do you know it's harder to be blessed than you realize? Sometimes blessings will challenge you in ways deficits won't. Hello? Nehemiah didn't waste any time blaming the king or the Israelites. He simply lifted his voice to the only one who was big enough to help and able enough to change the situation. And how did he do that? Let me talk you through some things that I think are pertinent to us as we stand on the precipice of what I believe will be the most glorious days of the church. He began his prayer by connecting his heart with the one that he loved. Look at verse 4 with me. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And what he's doing here, he's beginning his intercession with worship. He begins by tuning his heart into the all-sufficient nature and character of the God that he's talking to. He's aligning his life with his truth. He's coming into agreement with the person of God so that the purposes of God can come to pass. Worship is not an added extra to the life of anyone who seeks to be effectual on this earth. It is essential that we partner with the great, glorious God out of his nature, we will pray the most incredible prayers. If I'm praying out of my soul, I will miss some glorious things. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places. We are invited to partner with him as he intercedes over the situations in our lives. When we come into agreement with what Jesus is praying, we come into the flow of the Spirit and the kingdom of God starts to move quickly in our lives. If I come and I'm praying out of my brokenness of my, or my soul or my weariness or my heartfelt desire for a breakthrough, I am not partnering initially with the nature and the character of the God and His resources, His all-sufficiency that's afforded to me. How do I move from just being earthly in my concepts of prayer and move into the realms where the Spirit begins to move? Simply this, I worship God. And I worship God and I worship God not because it's a preamble to something, but it's the end in itself. I am here created to be in relationship with God. I want to worship Him with all of my heart, with all of my mind, and with all of my strength. And when I start to connect with that reality, I start to be lifted out of my humanity. And I start to begin to move in the spirit realm where His divinity and His power and His glory and His authority become afforded to me. Why would I be praying down here whenever I'm invited to pray up here in the heavenly realms with all kinds of prayers and intercessions that maybe in a human sense I don't fully understand, but I'm clothed in His nature. I'm surrounded by His goodness. I'm prophesying a life over my situation because I know who he is and I know what he wants to do. I'm abiding in the fellowship and the tabernacling of his kindness and I'm praying out of that reality. No longer a weeping widow, but a rejoicing bride in love with her bridegroom, prophesying the realities of God into my situation. 
If you want to have an effective prayer life, you need to have an effective worship experience. We don't come to God with lists of things we want Him to do. The real goal of prayer is not that we pray. The real goal of prayer is that we connect. And in that connection, He begins to speak. He begins to minister. He begins to offer life to us. Worship will accomplish so much more than we anticipate it will. It says, in His presence there is fullness of joy. Do you know that when you're full of joy, you will pray more effectual prayers? Come on, some of us have made a career of being miserable. When you're full of joy, you will pray more effectual prayers. Why? Because you're praying according to His nature. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. You're praying when you are abiding in peace because you've connected with Him, you will be praying according to His kingdom. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He owns the whole thing. He makes it available to those who connect with Him. And peace is not the absence of problems. It's the governance of God. It's the presence and the fullness of God, the kabod of God abiding over. How many of you believe that I will pray more effectively when I'm living in partnership with the joy and the reality of God? My prayers will sound different. They will have a heavenly sound attached to them. Here's what that is. Hope, joy, faith. When I'm praying... As I've connected with him in his presence, I'll be praying out of his governance. I'll be praying out of the certainty that he is who he says he is and he will do what he promises he will do. No longer to pray down here, but to pray up there with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 6.18 tells us to be in the Spirit at all times. Praying prayers of intercession and utterances to bring forth the purposes of God. So Nehemiah models to us what it looks like to partner with the Spirit to such a point where we are praying from the perspective and the posture and the power of God. Someone say amen to that. Amen. The second thing we notice in this chapter is simply this. Look at verse 5. Then I said to the Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And then look down with me, please, to verse 11. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Notice what's happening here. Nehemiah is teaching us that when we pray from a posture of worship, we connect with the flow of the Spirit and the authority of the kingdom is released in and through us and we start to see the kingdom come around us. But he also reminds us that it isn't just about encounter, that it isn't just about experiencing God. It's about obeying what the Lord invites us to do. Now, for many, many years, I've been involved in all kinds of renewal environments and I was puzzled by the effectualness of some of the encounters people were having. People would shake under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, get up and their life wouldn't change whatsoever. In fact, sometimes you'd be in meetings where God moved so powerfully and people would come back the following week and they'd be like pulling into the petrol station, wanting God to fill them again. And I remember saying to the Lord as a pastor, what's going on here? He said, people don't understand the rhythm of the Spirit. Yes, I will give you an encounter, but unless an encounter is actualized, it doesn't materialize into very much in the kingdom. So it's faith and works. I can't ask God to intervene and then when he advises me or tells me, ignore what he's saying. And Nehemiah is simply saying through these two parts of this chapter one that God, I recognize there's a connection. 
There's a connection here, Lord God, between what I ask of you to do and your presence and indeed the way I live my life. There's a link between my heart and my desire to obey. You see, church, we need to obey what the Spirit asks us to do. Some of us, we're just praying and we're praying and we're praying and God might be speaking to us, but we're not doing what the Lord has asked us to do. You see, I believe when we start to do what the Lord has asked us to do or we start to engage with what the Lord has shown us to do, then we start to see his kingdom come. We start to see his will be done. And don't worry if you're questioning your motives in your prayer. In 1 Samuel 16 verse 17, this is what God says. He looks beyond the humanness of the way we interact with him. It says, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, underneath all of my shenanigans and brokenness and pain and discomfort, my spirit longs for God. My heart longs to know him. And my greatest delight would be to serve him and obey him. It's time for us to move just from encounter whenever we seek God and actually into some kind of action. Faith without works is simply dead. The third thing that Nehemiah models for us is confession. In verse 7, it says this, We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Do you know it's not enough just to worship God? And it simply will never be enough just to do what God asks us to do. We must live with transparency before Him. We must live in humility in relationship with Him. It is very good for you to worship. It's very good for you to obey what the Spirit leads you to do. But also, can I say this, because this has become old-fashioned in the church, it's very good for us to repent. It's very good for us to stop and to think about what's driving our life and what's causing the difficulties as we start to do this adventure with Christ Jesus. Confession seems to be something that's old-fashioned now. But when I first became a Christian, this is what the ladies who led me to Jesus said, if he's not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. And basically what they were saying is, Simon, there is much of you to give over to God. Much of you to give unto God so that God may give unto you what he desires for you. I remember very vividly many, many times trying to hold on and justify my sin. Have you ever done that? Oh God, but you don't understand. God, if you knew how much they'd hurt me. God, if you knew how difficult it was for me. Many, many times I tried to hold back from being obedient to the will of God because it felt too painful to yield, too ridiculous, too beyond me at times to allow him to be the Lord of my heart and my life. And every time I've come to recognizing that I desire him more than I desire even life itself. And here's the key, church. If there's anything getting in the way of your relationship with Jesus, get it out of your life in Jesus' precious name. You and I in this particular generation cannot live with that kind of disparity. We cannot live with that kind of disconnect. We need to walk with him and in him as we move forward in the adventure for him. It's time for the church to come back to intimacy. And you know when you come into the presence of God, please don't fake it till you make it. Oh God, I don't know. No, no, no. God's not listening to this. He's listening to this. He knows what's in your heart. He's not interested in your fancy prayers, your token words. Oh God, I promise, I promise. No, you don't. God says, I know your heart and every promise you've made to me this week hasn't materialized into anything. 
Don't come with your Facebook persona before the throne room of heaven. Don't be showing off all your good attributes to God. Oh God, I love to worship you. God, I love to pray you. Get down on your face before him. Allow your heart to be true and vulnerable and real. God ain't talking to your Facebook persona. He wants to speak into your reality. He knows who you are. And you know you don't have to hide yourself. <laughs> you are hidden in Christ Jesus. When you speak from that place of honesty and transparency, the King of glory comes and He abides in your heart and your life. And your problems and your situations become possibly different in your perspective because you have been real and honest with the God who sees all things. It's time for the church to get back to some confession here. Sometimes we're blaming God and we're the ones at fault. You know, I, I go to churches sometimes we say, we, just, we don't know why God doesn't send His glory. Let me answer the question. It would blow you apart if he did. You see, here's what happens when the Spirit moves. Lots of good things happen because in the hearts of God's people, there are good things. Amen. We say hallelujah to that. But lots of terrible things happen because in the hearts of God's people, some terrible things reign. When the Spirit moves, it's like a, a, a greenhouse. Everything grows. Everything comes forward. That's why in every move of the Spirit, you'll see great things that bring glory to God and you'll see terrible things that take glory from God. Why? Because in the hearts of God's people, both those things reign. There's good in you, but there's some stuff in you that needs to go. Nehemiah comes into the presence of God and he wants that connection to be clean. He wants it to be clear. He wants it to be pure and he wants it to be right. When you're coming to God in your prayer, as the Spirit leads you and guides you, please make room for confession. Get rid of anything in your life that's holding you back from giving yourself fully to God. God is jealous over mindsets, heart attitudes, affections, anything that's stealing you from Him. He is relentless in His pursuit to get them from you. A number of years ago, I was standing in a youth meeting and I saw this picture over my life and uh, I was battling. Do you ever battle with God? <laughs> I was battling with Him and uh, I saw this treasure chest it kind of sat in the atmosphere over my life. And God just lifted the lid of the treasure chest. And inside it were fine jewels and rubies and beautiful emeralds and glorious treasure. And I said, what is this, Lord? And he said, that's the life I have for you. And I went to reach up for it. I went to move towards it in the spirit. I said, God, can I have that life? And he said, well, it's only available if you trade in your trash I said, God, I don't have trash. <laughs> God, I'm, I'm trying to live a good life for you. He said, no, no, Simon, look closer to your heart. And as I looked at my heart, all of my spirituality was empty and fake. It was about what other people thought of me. It wasn't full of integrity before God. I got down on my face that night in that youth meeting in a little hall in Selyoke, and I repented to God, and I said, God, I can't have what you want for me until I give you what you want from me. God, I give you my everything. God, I give you my life. I give you my brokenness. I give you the things I'm okay at and I give you the things I'm rubbish at. Do you know God's not, not, not just looking for all your best bits? He wants all of you. And the reason he wants all of you is because he wants to give you all of him. He wants you to live in the fullness of that reality. The fourth thing that we see Nehemiah do is found in verse 8. He prays the word and he allows the word to direct his prayers. Verse 8, remember the instruction you gave to your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you amongst the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, 
then even if your exiled people are the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Here, Nehemiah is quoting three or four different scriptures. He's quoting Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy chapter 4, and indeed Deuteronomy chapter 28. Church, listen to me. He's being more than theological. What he is doing, he is recognizing, as he recalls the faithfulness of God through his word, he's recalling and bringing back to the fore in his mind the reality that God has worked throughout history to work his purposes out in his family. God has always been faithful to his people. God wants to do it again. He wants us to remember what he's done already. You see, sometimes I, I listen to people pray, and I think they're almost holding God to his word, like God needs to be held to his word. God is more committed to his word than any of us in this room could ever be. That's the truth. What we remind God of when we speak the word is that we're reminding ourselves that he's true to his word. We're not holding him accountable to his word. We're holding ourselves accountable to his word that's been at work in our lives. Sometimes when I'm struggling to move forward, I need to look back. I need to say, God, I remember the day that you broke through in my life when my sin, that difficulty that I could not be free from, you broke in and you changed my heart forever. Hallelujah, God, your word is faithful. Your word tells me that everlasting to everlasting is the love of God. I'm not holding God to his word. I'm reminding myself that God has held me according to the power of his word throughout the course of my life. And then finally, he brings his requests. Give your servant success today, verse 11, by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was a cupbearer to the king. Now, will you stand with me, please, as we draw our thoughts to a close? You and I have the most glorious invitation to partner with the Holy Spirit and his power in a world that's so full of anarchy and so angry and so full of strife in an ever-increasing, decaying morality in society, God calls his church to live in victory. He speaks to his people in the midst of their context, and he asks of them, will you partner with me? Will you come into agreement with me that my power may be afforded to you in this hour? I believe it's crucial for the church to come back into that kind of clarity. Sometimes I fear that we are settling just for good meetings. And meetings are good, but they're not enough. You see, I can be carried along by a meeting by somebody else's faith and leave here and not have faith of my own to walk the walk that Christ Jesus has invited me to. I don't want to be a circumstantial Christian. I want to be a Christian that lives above their circumstances. I want to live with a robust clarity and certainty about the God who abides in me. And I want to work with the Spirit so that that glorious invitation to live in victory can be made available to me. We need to partner with the Spirit and let Him partner with us as we seek to position our lives for all that is to come. Do you know that there are battles that we're going to fight that right now we're not ready for? It's not going to get easier. Has anybody read the book of Revelation? It's not going to get easier. Do you know that the church is under attack in society? You know, it doesn't matter what you believe. You could believe in astral, whatever you can believe in crystals. You can believe that feathers bring healing. But if you say you believe in Jesus, you're automatically considered the most stupid person in that conversation. 
It's going to take courage for the days that lie ahead. We're going to need joy. We're going to need a robust joy. The enemy is trying to steal your joy. You know that, don't you? You need peace. You need to live under the canopy of another world, another reality, the presence of God, his governance and his kingdom come so that his will may be done. And how are you going to get there? Will human effort take you to that kind of reality? I don't believe that's possible. But I know one who grabs us by the hand this afternoon and says, walk with me into a new day and a new season where I will make you glorious. I will awaken you to the favor of God. I will stir your heart to great exploits. I will lead you to victory upon victory upon victory. That's your destiny. That's his legacy. And if we don't work with him, we won't see him at work in and through us.